I can't tell you how many patients I've seen that they come in and they say, I don't know what happened. I know one day I was told I have cancer and the next day I wake up, I've had surgery, you know, I've been in the hospital, I've had full dose chemo, radiation, and I'm halfway through three months of treatment. I mean, six months of treatment, so I'm at the three month mark, and I'm not really sure that this is what I wanna do. That's buyer's remorse, but that's buyer's remorse you can't go back on. You can't say, well, I've got a 30 day buy window on this house where I can change my mind. Okay, once an organ gets removed, once that knife cuts that skin, there is no going back at that point. And so taking the opportunity to evaluate where you are as a patient facing potential surgery, in many cases, that time will help to make you fully aware and confident in the decision you're making. Now, if there's emergency situations, that, that can be different. But here we're talking about purely kind of elective surgery. So then the question should then be properly asked. If we then delay treatment to take that time to, to reconsider, is this the right approach? Is there an effect on outcome? Because if delay in treatment to consider the variables to try to eliminate the possibility of buyer remorse, if we, if we delayed that and that increased the spread of cancer, then obviously that wouldn't be a good thing, right? And the evidence or the way people approach this, doctors, conventional medicine and patients, is that they think it's that the evidence is the longer you wait, the more risk there is associated with the cancer spread. But, but is that the evidence? Welcome to the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. This podcast is your resource for a scientific-based discussion of all things cancer and beyond from a natural, holistic, and integrative perspective. It's time to teach the body how to heal. So here we go. All right, we're back in the saddle. Had a little bit of a break from the in-studio recording. Actually, we're out and about interviewing different people for the podcast, always trying to reach out to find experts around the world and bring them to you on the Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast. And of course, I'm Dr. Nathan Goodyear. And uh, in the last uh, week or so was actually on a little bit of a speaking tour, uh, Dallas, the FLCCC, and down at the AMMG in Miami. So I'm happy to be back in the studio and actually super excited about this podcast episode because we're going to be wrapping up what I call the unholy trinity of conventional cancer care. And so what I want to do here is I want to dive into just this last part that is surgery. And I've talked previously about chemotherapy. I've talked about radiation. So I encourage you to check that out. But today we're going to talk about surgery. We're going to talk about many different aspects of surgery in conventional cancer care and, and what impact and implication that has in cancer. So thanks for joining us because we are diving in right now. And one of the quotes that I found in, in the presentation I gave recently in Dallas was uh, from an, an author, an entrepreneur by the name of Seth Godin. But it was, I thought, a very, a very good quote. It, it said, students today are educated in collecting dots, but almost none of education and teaching today provides the skills necessary to connect the dots. And it's a brilliant 
quote, because what we're going to do and what we're constantly doing in this podcast and in all the social media is connecting the dots. It's easy to collect the dots. That's not difficult. But the connecting the dots, that's where the, the wisdom comes from. That's where the application comes from. And I think everybody's heard of you know, Steve Jobs, just a little bit of a name out there. He said, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You, you can only connect them looking backwards. Now, what he's referencing there is looking back at history, looking back at studies. And that's what we're going to do today in the process of breaking free of the groupthink mentality and actually focus on the critical thinking mentality. We've got too much groupthink today. We need more critical thinkers. So here's the objectives. I want to lay this out in the front. We're going to wrap up again the unholy trinity. We're going to focus on medical induced error. Talk about that. We're going to talk about surgery actually as a trigger for metastasis. We're going to talk about not just what of that process of metastatic spread by surgery, but actually discuss the how. We're going to talk about biopsy. Do biopsies spread cancer? We're going to talk about that. Look at the evidence. Look backwards to connect the dots moving forward. And then we'll talk about local receding or local metastasis. Again, history really provides a foundation. Steve Jobs recognized that. And we'll start off with just a quick little story from history. The daughter of our second president, John Adams. Her name was Abby Adams Smith. She was diagnosed in the year 1811 at the age of 45 with breast cancer. Her physician was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Benjamin Rush, a very well-known top physician in the United States at that time. And he was actually the personal physician for John Adams himself. And he, had a, he has a really famous quote that I think really has great application here to start off. Here's his quote. Quote, the remedy is the knife. I repeat again, let there be no delay in flying to the knife. That was a correspondence between him and Benjamin Rush. In terms of telling um, between Benjamin Rush, excuse me, and John Adams, he was basically saying, look, the answer here is always the knife. Go there early, go there often, always go to the knife. And this is as it relates to, of course, Abby Adams Smith and the treatment of her breast cancer at that time. Unfortunately, and obviously, she did uh, succumb to the disease process shortly after. So that, that's the quote that really sets the stage, I think. Is the answer, is the question, always go to the knife? Well, first, let's start off by looking at a study from the Lancet Journal in 2019 entitled Prospective Urban Rural Epidemiology Study. You've heard me talk about this a lot. It's called the PURE study. And what's really interesting about this study is that it was looking, again, at high-income, middle-income, and low-income countries. And I repeat this uh, discussion of this article quite a bit because I think it has intense application to today and to the future. And what they found in this study is that in high-income countries, and the United States obviously falls into that category, cancer is the number one cause of death in adults. 
more than two and a half times that of cardiovascular disease. Very different than the narrative that's out there that the cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death in adults. No, no, it is cancer. And in fact, when you look at the numbers, the deaths from cancer in this, in this study, 1.7 deaths per thousand person years. This was two and a half times that of cardiovascular disease of 0.6 deaths per thousand years. Quite dramatic. Here's, this is even more dramatic. In the high income country, cancer deaths exceeded that of cardiovascular disease, respiratory disease, injury, infection combined. So not only is not only is cancer exceeding cardiovascular disease and mortality, it's it, it is exceeding that of other diseases coming together. What I say, it's the coming pandemic that we see today. Forget the last three years of the pandemic. Cancer is the pandemic today. And there are estimates that by the year 2030 to 2035, one in one adult in their lifetime will be diagnosed with cancer. First, I want to start off, though, in talking about medical error, because obviously if we're talking about surgery, medical error should be something that we consider front and center. Now, I also want you to understand that I am not anti-surgery. By nature, by training, I am a surgeon at heart. And so surgery is something that can be beneficial when it's clearly indicated. And in practicing as an integrative cancer doctor, I want to integrate the best evidence into the therapies, the combination of therapies, the sequencing of therapies. I don't want to just follow the status quo or the group think. And so when in the practice of integrative cancer, sometimes we'll use conventional therapies, but use them safer, smarter, more targeted, more precision based, but do so as the medical science dictates. And of course, that applies to natural therapies as well. Surgery has its place, but we want to use surgery really for those life-threatening situations. We don't want to rush to the knife, as Dr. Benjamin described. We want to focus on optimize the healing potential of the individual. I'm not going to fly to the knife, not going to rush to the knife, but when the knife is required, we want to make sure that it's indicated and that we put forth the best strategy to reduce the potential side effects. And metastasis is definitely a side effect associated with surgery. Did you know that currently the number three cause of death is considered medical error? So medical error, again restated, is the third leading cause of death. Estimates are that somewhere between 250,000 and 440,000 deaths annually occur due to physician or medical error. Not sure that any consent forms typically and routinely express that, but third leading cause of death is dramatic when you think about it. Now, number one, in this, uh, in the CDC data here that I'm quoting, and this is going back to 2016, actually it's 2013 data, but it was published in 2016. At that time, they actually had uh, heart disease as the number one cause of death and cancer number two. They had number three, medical error. Now, this is interesting because when you look at medical error, that requires medical 
presentation or medical accounting for that error. And what I mean here is doctors and hospitals and practitioners don't do a great job of self-reporting their errors. Now, a lot of that is to be expected because doctors, physicians, nurses, etc., we're out there trying to help people. And nobody likes to highlight their errors. Nobody likes to highlight their failures. And there are estimates out there that less than 10% of medical errors are reported by doctors. So if you look at this 2013 data, again, reported in 2016 in the British Medical Journal, at that time, medical error was the third leading cause of mortality. But again, context, clarification, identifier with less than 10% of medical errors being reported. And they had a little caveat in this slide of this publication saying, quote, however, we're not even counting this. Medical errors not recorded on U.S. death certificates. So basically, they were estimating this third leading cause of death from less than 10% of reporting of error and the fact that it's not reported on U.S. death certificates. So honestly, I think if you you truly looked at this in an honest perspective, medical error of which surgery would be prominent within that, it's going to be right up there at the top in terms of cause of death in the United States. And again, medical error is not recorded on the U.S. death certificate, let alone if doctors report it at all. Now, that's, that's focusing on U.S. data. But when you look across other countries, you find a similar but different, I think, uh, percentage. And it's interesting that the medical error rate, the medication error rate in the U.S. is amongst the highest in the world. And yet in the U.S., we have some of the most regulated medicine, the most protocol-driven medicine, the least independent critical care medicine, the most group-thinking medicine. Compare the U.S. to Germany in 2005, the medical error rate was 34% in the U.S. and 23% in Germany. In Germany, they have a much more autonomous um, ability to implement therapies in their practice. In the U.S., not so much. In some states, it's actually zero. So interestingly enough, the most regulated country in the world in terms of the uh, practical protocol application of medicine, the U.S. has some of the highest medical mistake and medical errors. But yet those countries like Germany that have the most autonomy, they have some of the least. So just a little comparison and contrast to the rest of the country. So let's look a little bit deeper at the increased mortality rate and the time frame after surgery. Because you know the idea is that with surgery shortly thereafter, within days, the mortality rate is going to decline appreciably, quickly. And that beyond that time frame, that acute post-operative phase, you know, the, the mortality or adverse event uh, time frame is going to be significantly reduced. This was an article from 2009, and it, it's entitled Death After Colectomy, which is the removal of part of the colon. It's later than we think. Archives of Surgery is where it was published. And they looked at complication rates, including mortality rates, and they were looking to see are they underreported or misreported, depending on how you look at it. So they looked at 30-day mortality rates, and they looked at 90-day mortality rates. And they looked at 
um, all mortality, looked at all surgery, elective, and then emergency procedures. And the 30-day mortality rate, interesting, looking at all elective and emergency procedures, was 4.3%, 1.4%, and 15.8% respectively. So at the 30-day mortality rate, the 30-day mortality rate of the elective surgery was 1.4%, whereas the emergency procedure was 15.8%. So that makes sense, right? Elective versus uh, emergency, there would be a significantly different rate or percentage of mortality rate. But interestingly enough, when you looked and jumped out to the 90-day, the mortality rate was still su substantially not only elevated, but increased. So for the all mortality rate, all surgeries, it increased from 4.3 to 9.1%. Again, colectomy here, not all, you know, so all colectomy reasons. And then looking at the elective, it increased from 1.4% to 4.1%. 30 to 90 day, and then the 30 to 90 day of emergency, it increased from 15.8% to 28.9%. So what this study really found is that when you jumped from the 30 day to 90 day, the concept that the longer you get away from surgery, the lower the mortality rate actually is not true. The evidence says the longer you get out from surgery, 30 to 90 days after colectomy, actually your mortality rate goes up. So just trying to really present the data here in terms of what is the data saying about the time frame of surgery, the risk associated with surgery in that immediate postoperative phase, that's 30 days, but even going out to 90, that mortality rate actually can go up and actually does go up. So the question is, do we cut first and ask questions later? And I would tell you that actually the data and looking at the evidence that is available today counters that quote from Dr. Benjamin Russ and that cutting first and asking questions later no longer can be applied in an evidence-based manner. And when you think about this in the rest of the world and in our daily lives, you know, that makes sense, right? There's, there's, there's this thing called buyer's remorse, right? where you go out there and you meet, a, you, you, know, you meet a car salesman and he convinces you that you need a new car and you buy a new car and you get home and you have buyer's remorse because you thought, oh, I should have thought about this. I, I should have taken some time to make a decision that I thought was the right decision for that time, but the right decision moving forward. I should have I should evaluated all variables associated with the car, the cost, the type of car, the year, the make, the model. Does it fit my lifestyle? Does it fit where I want to go? There's buyer's remorse. You see that across the board. Honestly, that's why my wife and I, every time we buy something of you know substance, of substantial financial value, we take time to consider that we sleep on it days and we talk about it and we you know discuss is this the right choice so that we don't have buyer's remorse yet there's this rush to cut without considering the possibility of buyer's remorse there's this rush to remove organs organs that we were born with now granted sometimes this can be necessary and i don't again say that I'm anti-surgery. It's just how we use surgery today, I think, is not evidence-based and not right for patients. 
Now, we don't have to look very far to find evidence of this. In just recent history, the vaginal mesh disaster. In fact, um, Johnson or J&J had to pay out over $100 million in damages. There was the rush to market of a vaginal mesh procedure and product that there was a rush beyond the data that was currently available to the public. And yet what happened as a result of that, a lot of people were harmed. And as a result of that, a lot of people had buyer's remorse, doctors, patients, families, because there wasn't the opportunity taken to consider the data, to wait on the data. Everybody wanted to get ahead of it. And when you look at surgery and cancer, you see that. I can't tell you how many patients I've seen that they come in and they say, I don't know what happened. I know one day I was told I have cancer and the next day I wake up, I've had surgery, you know, I've been in the hospital, I've had full dose chemo, radiation, and I'm halfway through three months of treatment. I mean, six months of treatment, so I'm at the three month mark and I'm not really sure that this is what I wanna do. That's buyer's remorse, but that's buyer's remorse you can't go back on. You can't say, well, I've got a 30-day buy window on this house where I can change my mind. Okay, once an organ gets removed, once that knife cuts that skin, there is no going back at that point. And so taking the opportunity to evaluate where you are as a patient facing potential surgery in many cases, that time will help to make you fully aware and confident in the decision you're making. Now, if there's emergency situations, that, that can be different. But here we're talking about purely kind of elective surgery. So then the question should then be properly asked. If we then delay treatment to take that time to, to reconsider, is this the right approach? Is there an effect on outcome? Because if delay in treatment to consider the variables to try to eliminate the possibility of buyer remorse, if we, if we delayed that and that increased the spread of cancer, then obviously that wouldn't be a good thing, right? And the evidence or the way people approach this, doctors, conventional medicine and patients, is that they think it's that the evidence is the longer you wait, the more risk there is associated with the cancer spread. But, but is that the evidence? came across an article from the American, Soci American Society of Clinical Oncology, what's called ASCO, and this quote said, you know, surgical treatment delay may not result in worse outcomes in patients with colon cancer. It was actually a poster from 2014. And this was a poster of a study that was conducted at Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. So no, no small little uh, facilities there. And what, what this study was wanting to determine was what effect, if any, delays between diagnosis and surgery had in patients with colorectal cancer. So is there an effect and is there an impact on that delay? And the findings of this study, again, this was a poster, is astounding and should really change the way you perceive surgery as it relates to rushing in rushing to the knife. They found an inverse relationship between treatment delay and death and recurrence rate, meaning a longer treatment delay was associated with lower mortality, lower death. 
a longer treatment delay was associated with reduced tumor recurrence rates. Does that not just blow your mind? So this is Harvard and Mass General. And they even found this in patients at high risk. So not just low risk, but high risk. The medium treatment delays, they looked at four different uh, time frames, eight days, 19 days, 29, and 59, 55 days. So eight, 19, 29, and 55. So four quartiles. In every treatment quartile, in every treatment evaluation delay of time, one, eight, nine, excuse me, eight, 19, 29, and 55 days, they found that the treatment delay reduced the odds of death and reduced the odds of metastatic tumor and recurrence by an odds ratio of 0.78. Okay, I'm a nerd. What does odds ratio mean? Well, odds ratio is a measure of the association between an exposure and an outcome. So here the exposure is surgery, the outcome is death, or the outcome is metastatic tumor, or the outcome is recurrence. And so when we're interpreting the odds ratio, if there's an odd ratio of 0.75, that means that the outcome is 25% less likely. Here, the odds ratio is 0.78%, meaning the odds ratio is a 22% less likelihood of death, metastasis, or recurrence associated with a delay at 8, 19, 20, 19 days, 29 days, and 55 days. So that delay actually improved outcome. Isn't that interesting? Another study looked at nearly 750 patients with colon cancer, colorectal cancer and showed that the delay in treatment not, was not only not associated with wor worse outcomes, but it actually was associated with improved outcomes. So hitting the pause button when you're sitting there with your surgeon to take some time actually improves your outcome as it relates to cancer. And what's interesting in the study looking at the 750 patients with colorectal cancer is they did nothing, nothing while they were waiting. There was no chemo. There was no radiation. They did nothing but time. And it improved outcomes. This has been shown in colorectal cancer. It's been shown in gastric cancer, stomach cancer. And this has been shown in bronchi cancer, bronchial cancer, lung cancer. Isn't that interesting? Very counter to the narrative, don't you think? But that's the evidence. So let's dive in even more. What about uterine cancer? What about female cancer? Well, an article from American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, what's called, it's a journal with, uh, uh, within OB Obstetrics and Gynecology, obviously, Survival Implications of Time to Surgical Treatment of Endometrial Cancer. As I told you, these podcasts, when it's just me and we're diving into the data, we're going deep. We're going deep. We're going to look at the evidence, see where the evidence tells us. What, what do those dots connect to? What they found is surgical treatment delay improved complication rate, including mortality rates in, in newly diagnosed patients with uterine cancers. What they found is that delays up to a month now, not beyond eight weeks, but up to a month, actually reduced the mortality rates at five years. So it's not just a short-term impact, it's a long-term impact. 
by simply taking time. So if you're out there and you've been diagnosed recently with cancer or you have a loved one or a friend that's been diagnosed with cancer and you're told it cannot wait. Now, if there's a life-threatening situation ongoing where it's in your brain and it's creating swelling, those are different situations, emergent situations. But if that does not exist, which is the vast majority of patients that go into surgery for cancer, they can take, you can take a moment to make sure it's the right choice for you. So Dr. Benjamin Rush, I'm sorry. Historically, you were a fabulous physician. You are right. But your quote to rush to the knife, it is not the best evidence-based approach that is according to the evidence today. Let's look at breast cancer because when you see the migration of how surgery has been applied to breast cancer, you can kind of really see that this rushing to the knife strategy, though was early on the approach as history and time and observations came about, we started to see, yeah, yeah, that's not the right approach. Rushing to the knife's not the right approach. See, when you look at cancer from day one, from day one, essentially it's systemic. Now that may be counter to the way that most people think about it, but we think about cancer as like, it's some kind of just really sequential process. You know, step one, it becomes cancer. Step two, it invades. Step three, it grows. Step, no, 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 it does it all at the same time. Cancer is metastatic as soon as it's invading. So this process, this concept of what we think and how we think about how cancer grows and spread, it's evolving as, guess, we understand new science. Science is never settled. It's never settled. That, by definition, is unscientific to say science is settled. We are always learning anew. And in new learning, we understand new things. Like, for example, today, the concept of a solid ball of cancer cells being completely isolated from the bodies no longer exists. There is what's called a tumor microenvironment. So delay in surgery may actually reduce cancer treatment. So let's look at this. Back in 1894, when surgery really hit in terms of the predominant uh, treatment for breast cancer, they under, uh, women, unfortunately, with diagnosed of, diagnosis of breast cancer at that time would undergo what's called a radical mastectomy. And this was when they would basically remove all the breast, the chest wall, the muscles, everything, even down to, you know, right up to the rib cage and all lymph nodes, every lymph node in the chest down into the arm. Brutal surgery. At least then they had general anesthesia compared to poor Abby Adams. Can you imagine what, what, what she received in the rush to the knife? You just hope maybe she had some good uh, bourbon or, or whiskey or something to get her through that. But now what we see is that with time, we're moving more to a breast cons conservation therapy. No longer are we doing these radical mastectomies. Now they're modified. Now they're more lumpectomies. Okay, so there's this there's this movement towards less is better, not just a rush to, but the the amount of surgery that we do is less because there's an understanding. You even see this in radiation, more targeted radiation. The only area where you're seeing this not be adopted or being resisted aggressively is chemotherapy. So, so we've kind of looked at the problem. We've looked at medical errors. We've looked at the rush. 
the rush to surgery, the volume of surgery, and, and I've presented a couple studies that show you how actually delaying time can actually improve outcome in terms of decision making. But the question here then I think that is most important in this podcast is does surgery itself cause or increase the metastatic risk of cancer? Because if you have a localized disease of cancer and you then cut and attempt to remove that and then spread that, that is an unforced error that can lead obviously to the eventual mortality of that individual. A confined disease process is much more easily managed and controlled and hopefully healed than is one that has spread to distant organ sites. So there are five milestones for metastasis, which is the systemic spread of cancer to occur. Cancer must achieve and must reach and achieve the circulation Circulating tumor cells that achieve circulation must survive that circulation process. They must survive against the host defense mechanisms, the immune system that is. They must get entrapped and, and attached to a distant site. A, this could be regional or could be distant. And they must invade and maintain a new growth of cells at this new metastatic site. Those are the five milestones for metastasis to occur and to be successful. And so the question is how and what does surgery impart in those areas? Well, I'll just let the cat out of the bag. Research does show that surgery causes an increased risk in the metastatic risk it causes metastasis. And we, we actually understand a lot of the mechanisms. It's, it's not just the what here, okay? It would be one thing if I was sitting here saying, oh, the what? Surgery does increase risk. Okay, great. But how? Because in, in the understanding of the how, we get a much better confidence in the fact of the what, that it does. And, and research clearly shows that surgery does increase metastasis and the risk associated with it. So there's several different mechanisms of how surgery does do this. Number one is mechanical pressure. And we'll touch on a little bit of each one of these. Vascular injury, hypoxia, increasing circulating tumor cells, increasing the survival of circulating tumor cells, surgical stress, and we'll touch on that specifically, immunomodulatory effects, and then a new theory, what's called concomitant immunity. Each one of these is imparting a mechanism of action of how surgery can actually cause cancer to spread. You know, there, there's actually research that points to simply examination of a woman with breast cancer. So just palpating, examining that breast can actually increase circulating tumor cells, let alone squeezing it and shooting it with radiation with mammogram. Isn't that interesting? Just simply examining the breast will increase circulating tumor cells. See, I mean, it's not, I, I mean, don't, don't, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you what a lot of the evidence out there points to. Vascular injury, obviously with surgery, you're going in there and cutting. And so you're cutting vascularity, you're cutting the vascular the supply. And so that in and of itself will also too spread the cancer. Hypoxia. This upregulates cell signaling, what's called vascular endothelial growth factor. 
and hypoxia is critical to cancer spreading irregardless of surgery-inducing hypoxia. Increasing circulating tumor cells. This has been shown, as I mentioned, breast cancer, but it's also been shown in skin cancer as well. Surgical stress. You know, when we think about stress, we think about, well, I had a stressful day. But surgery is stressful in a way we don't even think about, but it is massively stressful. You know, the stressors that we don't recognize, poor sleep, bad diet, surgery, these are the stressors that impact us metabolically. And so when you look at surgical stress, surgery increases a stress response in us. Things with what are called adrenaline or noradrenaline, these are what are called catecholamines. These are released in response to stressful events, and surgery, of course, is one of those. And this is going to modify the immune system. It's going to impact immune surveillance, and it's going to make it so that the immune system's not able to do its job. But how? But it's doing, you know, it's doing this through the stimulation of the hypothalamic-pituitary axis, this epinephrine and norepinephrine. You also may have heard of it as adrenaline and noradrenaline. Of course, cortisol is also involved here, but we understand the specific mechanisms of how. These catecholamines, epinephrine, norepinephrine, will bind to beta-2 adrenergic receptors, and this will promote M2 macrophage differentiation. Macrophages are recruited to the tumor microenvironment. They are macrophages that are that provide an anti-cancer effect, and there are macrophages that are adulterated and promote a pro-carcinogenic effect. And the M2 type of macrophages promote a pro-carcinogenic effect. So stress binding to beta-2 adrenergic receptors promote macrophage shifting from an anti-cancer to a pro-cancer impact. So your stress is impacting the immune system at the level of the tumor microenvironment. It will also suppress natural killer cells. Natural killer cells do exactly what their name implies. They naturally kill things like cancer. But if you suppress them, you're removing your body's defenses. Stress also increases T regulator cells. T regulator cells suppress the immune system locally, particularly within the tumor microenvironment, and this plays a clear critical role in how cancer will spread from that localized environment. And it also suppresses dendritic cell presentation. So all of this, adrenaline, noradrenaline, also known as epinephrine or norepinephrine, we don't just know the what of how surgery-induced stress will cause cancer to spread through immune effects. We know how. And what I've just described there through the M2 macrophage differentiation, the natural killer cell suppression, the increased T regulator cell impact in the tumor microenvironment, giving you an immunosuppressive environment, and then reducing the ability of dendritic cells, which are another type of macrophage, to present the cancer cell to the rest of the immune system, get the immune system involved. All of this is impacted by the stress of surgery. Even things like anesthesia, the white, there's a, there's a drug that's given often, it's called, uh, during surgery, it's called propofol. It's the white drug. It's the one that when, if you've ever been, ever been in the OR and had surgery and you're lying down and the anesthesiologist will tell you, I want you to go ahead and count back from 10 and you only get to about seven and eight. And then what happens is you wake up and there's, there's, like it, there's no time interval. 
you closed your eyes and you woke up. It's like that, that time was continuous, but there could have been four or five, six, seven, eight hours or more in between it. And that's that drug propofol. It's a, it's a, it's a helpful drug there, but that drug suppresses the immune system and it contributes to tumor recurrence and metastasis. And this is well known. So here, here's a quote from a 2019 article. Quote, the effect of anesthesia on immune, immune function in tumor patients has been broadly studied. It is generally considered that immune function, especially cellular immunity, is inhibited by anesthesia and that this inhibition can cause post-operative infection in tumor patients and promote, here it is, tumor recurrence and metastasis. So surgical stress, but here it's actually a drug being used for surgery and it's very common. And then there's a new theory, what's called concomitant immunity, meaning a dominant tumor actually is secreting substances, angiostatin, endostatin, and probably others. It's secreting signals that suppress the blood, su blood supply growth for distant, smaller, or unknown metastatic sites. Remember I said that cancer is metastatic from day one when it's growing and invading. But what happens is this theory, and it's being very much supported in the literature, that there's a dominant tumor. And this tumor is suppressing all of those distant sites that are there, but it's keeping them from growing. And concomitant immunity means you come in, you remove that tumor, you remove that signal, and then what happens is that inhib inhibition signal on the vascular supply to those distant sites is lost, and those distant sites will immediately start growing. So surgery can actually have an impact in a way that we have no idea of the metastatic risk associated with it. I mean, there could be, there could be distant sites in the lung, in the bone, in the liver that are controlled from the primary tumor. And then you remove the primary tumor and all of a sudden the inhibitory signal to those small distant sites is lost and those sites grow. Now, you may go, well, but that primary tumor needed to be removed. Well, well, let me propose this to you. What if that primary tumor was stable? What if that primary tumor wasn't growing and it was keeping those smaller, those smaller sites in check? I mean, I can think of three cases with breast cancer, uh, one with triple negative, excuse me, two with triple negative breast cancer and one with ERPR positive HER2 negative breast cancer. These three patients had stable breast cancer. They wanted to have parts removed. One lymph node, two had the primary mass removed, and two of them were gone within three months, one within a month, and one within four months. A very stable situation that turned very critical very fast. And so it, that right there supports the concept of that, that suppressive effect that's lost with the remover of that dominant tumor, concomitant immunity. Now, you're, you should ask, well, don't we want to treat that tumor? Of course we do. We want to eliminate that tumor, but we, would, we don't want to rush to the knife and then allow an impact that then causes distant sites that are present there that we just can't see to grow rapidly because that is a, that's a game changer. 
It's a game changer. So here's, here's an article, a study published in Cancer Research in 1999, titled Tumor Development Under Angiogenic Signaling, A Dynamic Theory of Tumor Growth. So this is looking at concomitant immunity. They were looking at mice bearing primary, so they had primary tumors in these mice. It was observed that the removal of the primary tumor propagated, facilitated the growth of very vascular metastatic sites. So these metastatic sites, which were highly vascularized, weren't growing, weren't present until that primary tumor was removed. They found that after the primary tumor was surgically removed, the metastatic sites started to grow. They created this vascular process that was inhibited by the primary tumor. But once the primary tumor was removed, the inhibitory process to, that, to those blood vessel supply growth to those distant sites was lost, and then they were allowed to grow. And they, they described these circulating inhibitors as angiostatin and endostatin. And this was published in Cancer Research in 1999. I mean, we're talking 24 years ago almost a quarter of a century. So this is not a new phenomenon or new understanding, but it's something that's been around for a little while that we're starting to get a better understanding on this process. And so that there we're talking about just simply the removing of the tumor. But when you talk about the surgical excision and manipulation of the tumor in the operating room with the resection of it, and all the blood vessel supply growth, that in of itself, beyond just the suppression of endostatin or angiostatin inhibitory signals, it actually increases circulating tumor cells in the blood and the lymphatic vessels. So again, there's many different mechanisms of how surgery, cutting, manipulation can have an impact on the metastatic risk. And again, why is that so important? Metastasis because 90% of morbidity and mortality associated with cancer is when cancer metastasizes, when it spreads. So quite, quite the connection to the reason why people succumb to this disease called cancer. And this was a really interesting article going back to 1974. I was born in 1970. So I was four years old when this article came out. Quantitative relationships of intravascular tumor cells, tumor vessels, and pulmonary metastasis following tumor implantation. The short take here and the relevance here to what I'm talking about here is that simply the handling of a tumor increased circulating tumor cells tenfold. So simply handling of the tumor intraoperatively increased the release of circulating tumor cells by tenfold. So what are circulating tumor cells, right? Well, circulating tumor cells are tumor cells that are released into the circulation from the primary tumor. So they are, in essence, a copy, a clone, if you will, of the primary tumor from the tumor site. Circulating tumor cells are regularly released from the primary tumor. It's a very inefficient process in, by which they result in metastasis. It's estimated at less than 0.1%. But if we do something that increases the success rate of this from 0.1%, it can become an exponential risk. 
and simply examining or palpating the tumor, as I mentioned with breast cancer, skin cancer, or intraoperatively, we're increasing the release of circulating tumor cells. I think right here is a good time to take a little break uh, for our sponsors that are gonna pipe in and tell us a little bit of something about how and what they can do to help you in your journey for wellness, healing, whether that be in the treatment of cancer or whether that be in just any chronic disease of aging. So listen to our sponsors of the program and we'll come right back to you on the flip side and we'll jump back into this concept of surgery and its impact on metastasis and mortality. All right, back from the break here. Um, you know, th this podcast here, there's gonna be different types of presentations that we have. There'll be deep dives, which is what this podcast is. There'll be, you know, interviews with pioneers and experts from around the world, and there'll be just kind of lighthearted. And I wanna keep the, the variety of what we do on this podcast out here, but understand the purpose of this podcast is really to do four things, hope, heal, teach, and serve. So understand, we're going to provide different types of, you know, access to the information there to kind of keep you on your toes, so to speak. So back to the deep dive here. We're talking about surgery. We're talking about how it impacts cancer. Specifically, we're talking about the metastatic risk. And it's really interesting when you look at the process of surgery and what it does, it, it, it impacts the immune system because remember, cancer is described as a wound that does not heal. I said remember, but I think it's the first time I've mentioned that in this podcast, is that cancer is referred to, actually in the title of articles, the wound that does not heal. So what does surgery itself induce but a wound? And so if you create a wound in the context of an environment where the immune system is dysfunctional, then you've created a, a quite the problem because you've created a wound, you've aggravated a wound, you've exacerbated a wound within the confines of a dysfunctional immune environment. And that's what surgery has been shown to do. Just a couple quick examples, macrophages, neutrophils, these are different types of immune cells which are recruited to the tumor microenvironment because of the wound. And so because of the wound and the dysfunctional signaling within that environment, these macrophages that are recruited, these neutrophils that are recruited, they become dysfunctional. What, what is a normal function of these cells, macrophages and neutrophils, to protect to control secondary infection, to heal, because of the dysfunction in that environment of the cancer, the wound that they induce through surgery and they aggravate through surgery, it then compounds the immune dysfunctional signaling. And so what is a normal attraction of immune cells to the environment to again protect and heal becomes the propagation of the immune dysfunction that causes the cancer to spread. So macrophages will do this by being converted to a type of macrophage, what's called M2 polarization, that propagates immune suppression and allows cancer to spread. 
Also, you'll see neutrophils get involved in this in a process of what's called netosis. Nets are neutrophil extracellular traps. These are, think of these like a lattice work of chromatin. It's a net that these neutrophils or white blood cells throw out into the environment to capture bacteria, viruses, and other things. But here, in this dysfunction of the tumor microenvironment, and here the wound exacerbated by surgery, the net, the net, net, the neutrophil extracellular traps. Let me spit that out. The neutrophil extracellular traps become procarcinogenic. That process is called netosis, and we know this is instrumental in cancer. Heck, we know it's instrumental in how the SARS-CoV-2 virus contributes to cancer. So, looking at a 2017 article. I think a quote really summarizes, and here's the article title, Surgery for Cancer, a Trigger for Metastasis. See, so you know, here I am, 2023, talking about in a podcast how surgery can cause the metastatic spread of cancer. But five years ago, an article published in Cancer Research, April 2017, was entitled Surgery for Cancer, a Trigger for Metastasis. So, you know, it's not necessarily that new. But the author there, Sam, uh, Samer Tomey, this is a quote, although surgical excision of primary or even metastatic tumors can save or extend life, and that is true. So again, I told you in the beginning, I'm not anti-surgery. It's just being well-informed about all the risks associated with surgery, and sometimes flying or rushing to the knife is not the right approach. I'll continue with the quote. It has long been acknowledged that the surgical insult itself may precipitate or accelerate tumor recurrence. So he's presenting, you know, the con the contrary possibilities. It can save or extend life, yet it may precipitate or accelerate tumor recurrence. That's the impact of surgery. And that's 20 today's 2023, that was 2017, but this goes all the way back over 100 years. The journal Annals of Surgery, July 1907. The Results of Radical Operations for the Cure of Carcinoma of the Breast. They actually found, again, over a hundred years ago, that patients who underwent surgical resection of their breast cancer, they didn't survive as long as those that were managed expectantly, meaning non-surgically. Now, to be honest, there's different reasons probably. Infection and other things, that was kind of the that was the pre-antibiotic era, so definitely that plays a role there. But the recognition that surgery and non-surgical intervention, those two had different outcomes, goes back almost 125 years. So not new. So 1907, I thought it'd be really interesting to look at 1907 and compare that to 1920, uh, 2023. It's not 1923, it's 1907 to 2023. And I mentioned that, you know, cancer has been described as the wounds that do not heal. And 2013 article from American Journal of Pathology described cancer as the wounds that will not heal. Again, it's not just the phrase that's important. It's because it's the immune dysfunction that doesn't allow that process to heal. 
So then when you jump into that arena and that environment with surgery, you have to recognize that environment is not normal. And that unnormal environment with the knife, those two together don't go well. Another article, even going back further from 2013, from 1986, looked at tumors, wounds that do not heal. They, they found very significant similarities between what's called the stroma, the, the cellular environment within the tumor, and that in wound healing. So they said even at the histological, at the microscopic level of the cells in the environment, they're very, very similar. But what's dis, dissimilar about them is that in cancer, the process is not normal. The environment, the, the immune system is not normal. Now, you know, back to the surgical stress and cancer spread. There's, there's a lot here that we, we really we recognize intently. Again, looking at the process of not that surgery induces the increase of circulating tumor cells, not that it, you know, throws those cells out there for, you know, distant sites to grow, but actually the mechanisms of how just the stress of the surgery, the impact, the stimulation of the hypothalamus, the pituitary, and how that stimulates epinephrine, norepinephrine, how that then suppresses the thymus gland to decrease T lymphocyte production and release, how it decreases natural killer cells, how it increases pro-carcinogenic macrophages, how it increases pro-carcinogenic neutrophils, how it increases immunosuppressive immune signaling, how it increases neutrophil extracellular traps and what's called netosis, how it reduces immune surveillance, how it increases angiogenesis, and how it increases metastatic tumor site growth. All of this is from an article from 2022, Tumor Regionalization After Surgery, Roles of the Tumor Microenvironment and neutrophil extracellular traps. So 2022 study describing the mechanisms of actions just of surgical stress and how it impacts cancer spread. So a little bit more about neutrophil extracellular traps. Again, neutrophils are themselves immune cells that we need. And here in, in, in cancer, it adulterates the normal. What I tell people about cancer is that, you know, cancer doesn't create new things. It doesn't create new pathways. It doesn't create new signaling. What it does is it creates dysfunction with what that which exists for its benefit and our detriment. So it adulterates, it co-ops, it misuses what's there for its purpose, its benefit and the body's detriment. So it doesn't create anything anew. And here, these neutrophil extracellular traps are very important in the immune system protect against foreign invaders, bacteria, viruses, etc. But here, neutrophil extracellular traps become adulterated, abused, and co-opted by the process of cancer in what's called netosis. There's an article from 2016 entitled Neutrophil Extracellular Traps Promote the Development and Progression of Liver Metastasis After Surgical Stress. 
And the liver metastatic burden in these individuals was significantly increased after surgery because of the stress of surgery, and this induced new metastatic sites, both local, regional, and distant. And this was in response to the stress and its impact on these neutrophil extracellular traps. Not only did this impact from liver resection the local regional in colorectal cancer, but it increased, the surgical stress increased the post-operative neutrophil extracellular trap formation by fourfold, and this reduced the disease-free survival. So let me recap that to be specific. So the immune dysfunction that existed in and around the tumor, because understand that the cancer itself will induce immune dysfunction. And here they were looking at liver cancer. So they go in there and they cut and remove the tumor, what they called liver resection. So that those neutrophil extracellular traps and other immune dysfunction already exists. So what they did is then exacerbated a dysfunctional system that already existed. And what that did is that reduced the disease-free survival in those individuals by over fourfold. And how did it do it? It spread it. It spread it. So again, this is not just the what, but it's the how. It's the how. It's the mechanisms. But actually, it's the extrapolation beyond just, you know, a, a petri dish of cells and animal. Here, it's actually the process of people and real examples itself. Now, this is really relevant today, especially coming out of the last three years in the pandemic, because one, we know cancer can induce netosis. And again, understand netosis is not the only immune dysfunction, but it's one that is very prominent in the media right now, but induces netosis. Cancer does. It induces immune dysfunction on a global scale. Number two, this virus, SARS-CoV-2, whether a spike protein from injection infection, it further induces netosis. And then you come in and you provide surgical excision, incision, and you exacerbate that netosis. So it should be no surprise that all of this is going to lead to the progression of metastatic disease in cancer. Again, we have to understand the environment, the context of what therapy is inter being introduced and its impact not just locally, not just regionally, but actually systemically. Because in cancer, saying everything is normal is not correct. Now, the whole body's not abnormal, but definitely in the context of cancer in the tumor microenvironment, it's clearly not normal, especially the immune system. How does netosis increase the metastatic risk? Because if we're talking about, you know, the, the what the how, there's going to be a level of each. Okay, so we talked about the what of cancer, surgery, metastasis, the how. We talked about, well, one of the hows is netosis. Okay, well, how does netosis do that? Okay, so there's always another level that we keep wanting to critically think and, coll and collect and connect those dots. Well, surgical injury, that is what surgery provides, it upregulates netosis, which is already upregulated in cancer. This stimulates, and it does it through what's called damage-associated molecular patterns. 
and these are just basically patterns of damaged tissue that the immune system recognizes. This netosis process is triggered, and here this is where things get really interesting. See, circulating tumor cells that are released from the primary tumor by surgery, right? We already touched on that, talked about you know, increasing it just by examination, okay? So circulating tumor cells are increased, but when circulating tumor cells are in the blood, they must survive that circulation process. And just the sheer force will destroy them, as well as natural killer cells in the immune system. So these circulating tumor cells must form these, what are called multicellular aggregates. And in part, it, it surrounds itself with platelets. Platelets are hyperactivated in cancer. And yes, spike protein does that. But platelets that are hyperactivated surround the cancer, the cancer cells that are circulating, and it becomes what's called a cancer cell platelet aggregate or platelet cancer cell aggregate. And that, that platelet surrounding of the cancer cells that are circulating creates a buffer that protects against the sheer force as well as the immune system trying to destroy it. But understand these neutrophil extracellular traps also come in and form as a part of this complex, this neutrophil extracellular trap platelet cancer cell aggregate. And this multicellular connection around the circulating tumor cells protects these circulating tumor cells and improves their survivability as well as potentiates their impact to form metastatic sites. Because when that circulating tumor cell is traveling around the body, it must be slowed to stop and to then what's called extravasate through the blood vessel lining into a new site. And platelets are do a great job of helping to bind to endothelium. That's the vascular lining. So platelets will also help to slow it down in that circulation so as to allow that platelet cancer cell aggregate, neutrophil extracellular trap aggregate, unload its deliverable here. That's a circulating tumor cell. So how does netosis stimulate the metastatic process? Obviously, we're taking it from the connection of surgery being induced by inducing netosis. Well, it'll degrade the extracellular matrix. It'll create uh, the environment that allows entravisation. That's how cancer cell invades. It hyperactivates platelets, which I already touched on. It promotes epithelial to mesenchymal transition, which is how cancer goes from mobile to immobile, uh, immobile to mobile. It promotes extravasation. That's how cancer cells invade through the vascular endothelium into the distant sites. It reactivates dormant cancer cells, and it prepares. It actually goes ahead and cultivates the soil of what's called the pre-metastatic niche. And that helps so when these neutrophil extracellular traps and platelet cancer cell aggregates arrive at that distant site, that soil, that preparation allows it to achieve a much easier transition to a new site and to promote colonization and new growth. And again, understand, neutrophil extracellular traps are not bad, just like macrophages are not bad, just like the immune signaling that, that cancer uh, misuses, the cell signaling that promotes growth. None of these are bad, it's just cancer misuses what's there. So again, it's not just the what, but it's the how. 
So from that 2017 article in Cancer Research that I said was really good, that was basically way ahead of what I'm even talking about today, the title of that article was Surgery for Cancer Triggered from Metastasis. Great quote from that article. Surgery is a crucial intervention and provides a chance of cure for patients with cancer. Okay, I told you we're not anti-surgery. The perioperative period, which is this period in and around surgery, this perioperative period is characterized by an increased risk of accelerated growth of micrometastatic disease. Micro is what you get before you get macro. And increased formation of new metastatic foci, new metastatic sites. The true impact for cancer patients remains unclear. Surgery induces increased shedding of cancer cells into the circulation, circulating tumor cells. This suppresses anti-tumor immunity, allowing circulating cells to survive. Upregulating adhesion molecules and target organs, recruiting immune cells capable of entrapping tumor cells, and inducing changes in the target tissue and in the cancer cells themselves to enhance migration and invasion to establish a distant target site. Surgical trauma induces local and systemic inflammatory responses that can also contribute to the accelerated growth of residual and micrometastatic disease. Now again, micrometastatic disease is micro disease that we can't see yet. Doesn't discount its presence there. It just hasn't become macro. But guess what? Comes after micrometastatic disease, macrometastatic disease. So micro can't be just discounted, it's just the precursor to macro. So the perioperative period, as this doctor or this uh, paper was talking about, affects cancer recurrence in a wide variety of ways. So of course, we've touched on this, just simply the surgical trauma. Again, over and over and over again, I repeat it. Cancer is described as a wound that will not heal. Incomplete resection. So you know when they say, well, we've had, we have clear margins, how do we know that? It's just what we can see, right? Are there cells outside that? Because this is a micro, this is a micro process. Even what we see, there can be things outside we, what we see. You can look at cancer through, you know, a PET CT scan or an MRI and blood work and say everything's clear. You have no evidence of disease, and then the cancer recurs and and is shown to be present three months later. Was it gone? No, it was there. We just couldn't see it. That's micro disease. So incomplete resection. Reseeding. This is the process by which cancer will reseed at the site of its origin of the primary surgical resection. I've touched on anesthetic agents, opioids, morphine, post-operative pain medications that are used in the treatment of pain suppress the immune system. The longer the immune system is suppressed after surgery, the more the cancer cells have to reseed and spread. Transfusions intraoperative hypothermia, low temperature. These all increase cancer recurrence. And then of course, what's called lipopolysaccharides, LPS, this is systemic inflammation that originates from the gut, metabolic endotoxemia, that, that really lays a groundwork for all chronic disease of aging that we can think of, diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, neurodegenerative disorders, and yes, cancer. And again, LPS coupled with a spike protein aggravates systemic inflammation in patients uh, at high risk for COVID in those with cancer. So I talked on, talked on concomitant immunity. And here, an uh, article from 2012 talked about concom 
concomitant tumor resistance. It's basically the same concept. And basically it's this, that again, our understanding of metastasis is different. If cancer is diagnosed and there's a primary tumor, we have to assume that there are metastatic sites present. Maybe we can't see it. Maybe it's just micro and it hasn't become macro. That is visual to the, to the visible eye. Maybe it's micro or maybe it's just dormant because the immune system is keeping it dormant. Here, it could also be the cancer. The primary tumor is suppressing the ability of that distant site to grow, or maybe it's making it dormant. So again, our understanding, the science always evolves as we better understand. So how can surgery for cancer trigger metastasis? Well, we've touched on a lot of different ways, okay? But it triggers inflammation. It changes the tumor microenvironment even more so than what it is. You're cutting through a dysfunctional environment. And so you're not going to get a good healing environment. And that's going to allow cancer cells to escape the immune system. Physically, it'll escape what's called intravasation, and it will escape the immune system. It'll disseminate circulating tumor cells. It'll survive the circulation. That's the neutrophil extracellular traps, platelet, and platelet cancer cell aggregate. They migrate through the rest of the body. They stop in, at a landing site that's been pre-prepared, the pre-metastatic niche. They then invade that site, what's called extravasation. They then survive and grow. All of these are descriptive mechanisms described of how surgery can trigger this process. So, and it's not just the art of the knife, it's some of the drugs used, as I mentioned, okay? The anesthetics, the post-operative pain medications. So it's, we, we can't just put all of this onus on that rush to the knife. We have to recognize that it's the entire process involved that is associated with the metastatic, micrometastatic to macrometastatic process. So that there, we're just talking about surgical resection. We're talking about, you know, excision of a disease. We're talking about a lumpectomy. We're talking about a mastectomy, the removal of a tumor in the liver. We've been talking about just big surgical, you know, trauma and what that does to cancer. Clearly the implication is it significantly increases metastatic risk. And I think much more than anybody realizes. But what about biopsies? Because that's kind of a, it's kind of a microsurgery, right? Biopsy, many different types of biopsies. And here there's a lot of pushback from conventional medicine. Even conventional docs will recognize, surgeons will recognize the risk of surgery associated uh, with metastatic risk. They, they recognize that, whether that be distant or whether that be local receding. But biopsy, this is where they push back very hard. There's many different types of biopsies. There's core biopsies, there's needle biopsies, there's excisional biopsies. So what is the, what is the connection between biopsies and cancer? Well, cancer induces neutrophil extracellular traps. They're aggravation, hyperactivation in netosis that promotes cancer. So cancer itself induces this inflammatory process that promotes cancer spread. And it's present in the tumor microenvironment. 
That is, again, no longer is cancer a solid ball of cells completely isolated from the rest of the body. It is involving communication with the healthy cells. It's kind of a gray area, if you will, but there's definitely a solid ball of cells that exist within the center of that where then outside of that interacts with the rest of the body. A punch biopsy increases circulating tumor cells. Here's a quote from a 2015 article. Quote, steadier rate of circulating tumor cell detection is seen after the biopsy for six weeks. So a biopsy is penetrating a dysfunctional immune environment, a dysfunctional growth environment, so we should not be surprised that circulating tumor cells and immune dysfunction is potentially propagated as a result of that. Is it macrosurgery? No. Is it microsurgery? Well, it's it's a biopsy, so it's, it's not quote-unquote surgery, but it's a procedure that is invading a dysfunctional environment, that is invading a area that is not going to respond well. It's invading a wound. So don't be surprised if what we get out of there is propagation of a wound, and this wound is cancer. So in this article, they found that tumor volume was associated with the increasing circulating tumor cells. So the bigger the tumor volume and the biopsy, the more the circulating tumor cells that were released. Again, we touched on how an examination of a breast tumor can increase circulating tumor cells, circulating tumor cells tenfold. Here, the biopsy will increase it for over six weeks. Six weeks. And imagine this, if you're taking chronic opiates, the immune suppression that results there and then the increase in circulating tumor cells, you're actually propag- you're, you're sowing seeds of metastatic risk. And this increased metastasis in, and risk. So these increasing seeds, throwing out of these seeds is going to in, increase the metastatic potential. Now you may go, Dr. Goodyear, you're just sequentially taking steps. You're theorizing. You're, you're just connecting dots as you collect them. Well, that, that's true, but we're connecting the dots that we've collected because of other studies. So here was an article looking at its uh, uh, core needle biopsy promotes lung metastasis for breast cancer, an experimental study published in Molecular and Clinical Oncology. So, you know, that's 2018 study. They, they looked at 30 mice, and they were divided into two groups, a biopsy and a non-biopsy group. The, numbers, the number of metastatic lung nodules in the biopsy group was significantly higher compared to the non-biopsy group. And they found that it was through the expression of what's called increased transforming growth factor beta-1. This is an immunosuppressive signal within the tumor microenvironment. The core needle biopsy was found to promote the lung metastasis of breast cancer in the group, the arm of mice that received the biopsy, and the mice that did not, did not. And it promoted, beyond this immunosuppression, it promoted what's called epithelial to mesenchymal transition. This is where cancer goes from an immobile site to mobile. For cancer to spread, it must go from immobile to mobile. The activated platelets, the activated neutrophil extracellular traps, and the neutrophil extracellular trap platelet cancer cell aggregate actually maintain this epithelial and mesenchymal transition, which maintains the ability of cancer cell to make be mobile and spread. So there, we're just looking at a core needle biopsy in an animal study, and it increased the metastatic risk. Not just the what, 
but the how compared to those that did not receive biopsy. What about a fine needle aspirin? So if we go in and do a core, nut, core needle biopsy, what about a fine needle aspirin? Well, that was shown to increase um, blood dissemination of breast cancer cells from breast tumors. So both a more of a core biopsy as well as a fine needle aspirate, both of those will increase the potential spread of cancer. But this is rare is what we're told. We've been told a lot of things over the years. Last three years, we've been told a lot of things that didn't prove to be true. But here's a quote from 2011, British Journal of Radiology. They said, quote, anxious patients who may inquire about this potential complication, here he's talking about biopsy risk, they can be reassured that although it does occur at a microscopic level, the clinical effect appears negligible and biopsy as a cause of disease recurrence appears very rare. So remember what I talked about metastasis. I talk about I talked about it first begins as micrometastasis, and then it became macrometastasis. Well, microscopic levels will become macroscopic levels. And what is rare? Well, rare in the mid-1500s is described as few in number and widely separated, sparsely distributed, seldom found, very infrequent. Now a diamond is rare, but so now are we have less rare because we have synthetic diamonds. And so when we look at cancer and metastasis, surgically induced here, biopsy, I think rare from a primary tumor that's not disrupted, yes, it is rare. But we really make a transition from the organic diamond to the synthetic diamond when we come in and we disrupt that with biopsies and surgery. Now, biopsies can help, to help us to identify the uh, nature of the disease, the primary location of the disease. But fortunately, we're, we're entering a new era where we're actually able to evaluate you know, circulating tumor DNA and circulating tumor cells as they circulate through the circulation and actually get a better understanding of what these tumor cells are doing and how they're behaving. So maybe one day we'll actually be able to eliminate the need for that biopsy, whether that be a fine needle aspirate, punch, or excisional biopsy, because that clearly does pose significant risk. You know, if somebody has a history of breast cancer, so maybe diagnosed two years ago, they were in remission, and then it comes back in the normal mechanisms of that which it spreads. So it shows up in the bone, which breast cancer does, or it goes to liver or it goes to lung, which is that, that's what breast cancer does. I would propose that poking the bear there is not necessarily the right thing to do. The right thing to do there is to first evaluate circulating tumor DNA and the circulating tumor cells and see what we see. Do we actually detect the, the actual breast cancer cells from the breast cancer in the circulating blood? If we do, what's the reason to poke the bear? What's the reason to jump into a, a wound, a dysfunctional immune environment, other than to just cause harm? And again, we have to recognize that this process of metastasis, at least from circulating tumor cells, it's estimated is a very inefficient process, less than 0.1%. But if what we do through biopsy, if what we do through surgery helps to further create this conglomeration of multicellular circulating tumor cell aggregate with neutrophil extracellular traps, because it's already there. 
because the cancer itself has induced it in a tumor microenvironment. Whether you're doing it via punch or a needle or a scalpel, you're going through that. Then you're hyperactivating platelets because they're already hyperactivated in part. And then you form this multicellular complex. And what does it do? It increases the unfavorable outcomes by 20 up to 100 greater fold. That is metastatic potential. In essence, what it does is it enhances the metastatic fitness. So you may say, well, Dr. Goodyear, it sounds like you're saying that surgery enhances metastatic fitness of the cancer. And I would say, well, that's what the science says. You would say, well, then it sounds like you're also saying that biopsies also enhance metastatic fitness. I would tell you that's what the evidence says. Now, that doesn't mean that surgery can't have an indication. That doesn't mean that biopsy can't have an indication. But a rush to a surgery, a rush to biopsying every little thing you see in the body, that needs to be reconsidered because we have to understand what this process is, we have to know the evidence, and we have to have a better understanding about its potential impact on that individual. Because if we have a localized disease process and we spread it, we have set the stage that's gonna to lead to 90% of morbidity and mortality in that individual. Back to the medical error. Medical, British Medical Journal was estimating that three, that the third leading cause of mortality was medical intervention or surgery. That's with the underreporting that I mentioned. I would tell you it's much, much bigger. And I think there's a case to be made that it could be even number one. So what about looking at the different types of biopsies? There was a hospital registry cohort from 2020, again, not that long ago. The, they looked at the association between methods of biopsy and survival following breast cancer. So I'll give you a couple quotes from there. Included, they looked at 3,416 non-metastatic breast cancer patients between 1993 and 2011. So good, good follow. 990 patients were diagnosed via core needle biopsy. 1,364 by fine needle aspirate cytology and 1,062 by excisional. Now, what they did here that's a little bit interesting is they did radiation right after the biopsies. I wish they hadn't done that. Um, well, I, I'm grateful they did it for these patients, okay? But in those that had that done, it actually it, it, it protected um, against the spread. But what they found is that in the absence of the radiotherapy, radiation, in the core needle biopsy, there was a significantly higher risk of mortality than the fine needle aspirate cytology, meaning when there was no radiation after the biopsy, the core needle biopsy poses the greatest risk compared to the fine needle aspirate. So do biopsies increase the metastatic potential risk of that cancer? Fine needle aspirate, yes. Core needle biopsy, yes. Excisional, yes, it's basically just a microsurgery. Is it rare as that one as that one quote unquote author described? Well, we're seeing a whole lot of rare that's occurring here in articles. So if rare is something that occurs repeatedly, it's not rare. That doesn't make it common, but it's there. And that's not rare. So I think it's really important to understand that it's the evidence is saying 
much different than what the narrative is. Narrative in medicine has no place. Science dictates what medicine does. It should. A narrative is the means to control action, thinking. Simply following the science promotes a change of thinking and action because the science dictates so. The narrative comes in and counters that to control the science and the thinking. And so, again, following the science always should lead to change because with science comes new information, new knowledge, and with new knowledge and new information should come change. But unfortunately, change sometimes can counter a narrative, and we just can't have that. So I love this quote as we start to wrap up here. It's from a uh, 2020 article entitled, The Association Between Methods of Biopsy and Survival Following Breast Cancer, a Hospital Registry-Based Cohort Study. is the one I just talked about. Given that our results contradict the findings of previous clinical studies assessing the prognostic impact of method biopsy in women with breast cancer, further studies are warranted. Basically saying, well, this is really interesting, the authors are saying. Our results say something different than the narrative. So instead of saying the narrative needs to change, uh, let's just get more studies. That's just a way of trying to kick the can down the road and saying, you know what? Clearly we need to change, but yeah, we don't want to be the ones to say that because we're going to be the ones that say we need to change what we're doing, that the narrative hasn't been right. But of course, that's what it means to follow science. Follow the science not dictate the science. The last point here is looking at local recurrence. And essentially what this is, is this is basically local receding. Almost think of it kind of like a local metastasis. The cancer spreads, but here it's spreading back at its original site. We looked at surgery. We looked at biopsy. Now we're looking at surgical induced local recurrence. Article here entitled Local Cancer Recurrences, The Realities, Challenges, and Opportunities for New Therapies. Breast cancer, local recurrence, 5 to 25%, a quarter. Non-small cell lung cancer, 5 to 40%, pleural cancer, 35 to 65%, peritoneal cancer, 40%, retroperitoneal sarcomas, up to 70%, rectal, 4 to 8%. The point, not only is there metastatic risk, not only is that from surgery, that's excision, that's from biopsy, but here it's, it's simply talking about the local recurrence from the surgery. Again, think of it as a local metastasis. And again, depending on the tumor type, the, the risk is huge, upwards of 70% for sarcomas. So, you know, when we go back to the beginning and look at the objectives, you know, what we're doing here is wrapping up this unholy trinity of looking just at the evidence. Again, don't shoot the messenger. The evidence, the evidence is not about a narrative. It's about what the evidence shows. We looked at chemo, we looked at radiation, now we looked at surgery. Medical error is at least the number three cause of mortality. And I would say it's much higher. It could be number two. It, heck, it could be number one. But clearly, surgery triggers the process that favors metastasis. 
That's not just a title of an article from 2017, but it's not just the what, it's the how. We know the how. More than surgery, biopsies. Now, it may be rare, but the more rare we see, the less rare in reality it becomes. Does that mean we exclude biopsies? I hope one day we will we'll be able to exclude biopsies with the use of, again, circulating tumor DNA, circulating tumor cells. I hope we're close to that. But we don't need to go stick a needle in every little tumor that's seen. We don't. If cancer was there two years ago and it spreads in the same area that it was and what that cancer normally does, that is, as I use the example, breast cancer to bone, to lung, to liver, does it require you to go in and biopsy a lung mass and a lung liver mass and a bone mass? When it looks like a dog, it acts like a dog, it barks like a dog, it's a dog. The first step there should be look at circulating tumor DNA, look at circulating tumor cells. And if there's confusion there, there's still even better testing underneath the hood that allows us to look for residual disease and match it to the primary tumor and, and, and understand what's happening. Don't poke the bear when we don't need to poke it. Does it cause micro, uh, micrometastatic disease? It could, but what does macrometastatic disease come from? Micrometastatic. So that, that author that says it's rare and it creates micro, uh, micro uh, processes, well, guess what macro processes come from? That micro. So I, I, I discount that quote there. And beyond the biopsy is the local reseeding. And again, that's more of a local metastasis, metastasis that's just recurred locally. So when you actually look at the evidence, you know, it's very counter to the narrative that surgery poses significant risk, not just from the surgery itself, but it poses risk to the cancer spreading. That taking time to consider all options is safe. In fact, research says advantageous, beneficial to outcomes. So that's the evidence. So that's wrapping up this unholy trinity of conventional cancer care of, of what's happening today. So where are we going in the future? Well, only evidence knows. But what we will always do here on this Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear podcast is we will follow the evidence. We will challenge every paradigm. We will challenge every narrative. Heck, we'll challenge every study. And I may come back to this triad, this trinity concept in five years and may challenge it because that's what science does. That's what new evidence does. It brings new information, new knowledge, and it brings change. Change is not bad. Change can actually be very, very good. So I'm Dr. Nathan Goodyear signing off. I encourage you to like the podcast, share the podcast. Of course, check us out at drgoodyear.com. There, that's where you'll find our podcast. Download us, find us on wherever you stream your podcast. That would be Practicing with Dr. Nathan Goodyear. Check us out on Instagram, dr.goodyear.com and across almost every social media platform. I'm Dr. Goodyear signing off and we will talk to you very soon. Take care. Bye now.